Today, no money in the world fully performs all three services. National currencies are being used as means of payment and standard of value money, but none in this inflationary age is an assured store of value money. In fact, a foremost concern to voters and politicians everywhere is that so many currencies are so rapidly losing their value in terms of commodities and services. Commodities like gold and silver, which are being used as store of value money, are not being used as either means of payment or standard of value money. Thus, the world we have so long known, in which most currencies were redeemable at a fixed price in a store of value money like gold, is in disarray. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. And I have got a really fun read today. And it is fun in particular because perspective is everything. And it's really easy to forget what the world looks like when you're standing in a different place at a different time, in particular what our monetary world looks like, when all we have is what we have known while we have grown up as normal. We suffer heavily from normalcy bias and monetary technologies and monetary goods suffer from this so terribly because they happen on such long timescales. Money is an incredibly slow-moving technology when it comes to shifts because it is one of the most fundamental pieces to any and all economic cooperation. So the piece we have to dig in today, it, dig into today is from the American Institute for Economic Research. So it's IRE, um, which, uh, but this was published. We've read numerous of their more recent pieces, but this was published in June of 1972, just after the gold standard took its final breaths. And I cannot remember who directed me toward this piece, but I very much appreciate it because it's just fun. It's just interesting to see the perspective of someone on the day, like right when this was happening and see what they potentially think about the future path of this and what they could see as the outcomes and the problems. And also... It's so important to understand this perspective and look upon today to realize that we are not living in a normal monetary world. We are living in an insanely volatile, unstable, and experimental monetary world that has genuinely never been the case prior to this unique and very strange time that we are living in. And... It also paints a picture or helps inform the framing for why Bitcoin is set to fundamentally change this. So really quick, let's hit our sponsors and we'll jump into the read. The power of Bitcoin is to be sovereign. 
And to be sovereign in Bitcoin means that you are the single person in control of your keys. And the best way to do that is with a secure hardware wallet like the Cult Card. If you have not checked it out, if you have not gotten a hardware wallet yet, I highly, highly, I'm, no, I'm telling you, you must. And luckily, you can get a 9% discount with code BitcoinAudible if you snag your cold card. If you have substantial money in Bitcoin and you have not done this, please do so. Take the time. You will thank me later. The link is in the show notes. And then you're going to want to start stacking Bitcoin really hard. And the cleanest, highest signal onboarding experience you're going to have is with Swan Bitcoin and starting a Swan Bitcoin savings plan that is just going to buy Bitcoin automatically every paycheck, every uh, day, week, month, however you want to do it. You just set it up once and it runs and it will automatically withdraw to your cold card. I've been doing this since I don't know forever and it's a critical part of my sat stacking. And then the other big part is the fold card, which is the lowest cost way because it turns your fiat life into a sat earning endeavor. Pay your bills, get some sats back. Go out to eat, get some sats back. Get coffee, sats back. Groceries, sats back. Plus 20,000 sats just for signing up. Check them out. Link in the show notes. With that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled, Currencies Today Are IOU Nothings by John Exter. Published by the American Institute for Economic Research in June of 1972. Now that the international monetary system we have so long known has broken down, and the world is groping through monetary reform for a new one, it is time to consider some fundamentals. What is money, anyway? First, it is a means of payment or medium of exchange. I prefer that first phrase. It is simpler. We all use money to pay our bills, to buy goods and services. We also accept money when we sell. Second, it is a standard of value. We quote values of goods and services in terms of it. The resulting ratios are prices. Third, it is a store of value. We hope to avoid loss by holding it. Money holds its value if it is scarce and remains scarce. Scarcity is the keystone of store of value money. Today, no money in the world fully performs all three services. National currencies are being used as means of payment and standard of value money, but none in this inflationary age is an assured store of value money. In fact, a foremost concern to voters and politicians everywhere is that so many currencies are so rapidly losing their value in terms of commodities and services. Commodities like gold and silver, which are being used as store of value money, are not being used as either means of payment or standard of value money. Thus, the world we have so long known, in which most currencies were redeemable at a fixed price in a store of value money like gold, is in disarray. People are confused in wondering what money they can trust. Sensing the instability of the system as a whole, they turn day by day from one means of payment money to another in the foreign exchange markets, and much more gradually to store a value money like gold in the London and Zurich gold markets. Scarce Commodity 
If we carefully look into the meaning of this market churning, it becomes clear that store of value money, if it is to endure, must be a commodity, and a scarce commodity too. Silver has long been a less satisfactory store of value money than gold, principally because it has been and promises to continue to be more abundant. Many of the currencies used as means of payment and standard of value money have not proved good store of value money chiefly because they too have grown too abundant. Since they are simply either paper, currency notes, or bookkeeping, deposits, promises to pay, i.e. debt obligations or IOUs, the confidence of people in them as store of value money depends heavily upon the ability of the central banks responsible for their issuance to honor those promises to pay in a commodity that is indeed store of value money. This is the issue of convertibility, which the Europeans, especially the French, are emphasizing today. Until March 1968, when the two-tier gold system was established, the central banks issuing all major currencies were promising all holders IOU gold at $35 an ounce. Under the two-tier system, however, the IOU gold promise was abrogated for private people, and except for the South African Reserve Bank, central banks refused to sell any gold at any price to private people. The IOU gold at $35 an ounce promise was honored only among central banks and governments, and even among them it became gradually more tenuous. On August 15, 1971, the IOU gold promise was abrogated even among central banks. Same relative rates. So today, all currencies in the world are saying, I do not owe anybody anything. Each one says, in effect, I owe you nothing in the way of any commodity that is a store of value money. In that situation, an attempt was made at the Smithsonian to re-establish fixed exchange rates, which meant making one central bank's IOU nothing equal to a certain number of another central bank's IOU nothings, with a two and a quarter percent spread on either side of parity. It is obvious that such an arrangement could last only if the exchange rates agreed on at the time were equilibrium rates, and if in the future all central banks agreed to control the issue of their new IOU nothings at the same relative rates. The second condition was certainly not met, and no one can be sure the first one was. Although it was agreed to raise the price of store of value money gold to $38 an ounce, no arrangement was made for a central bank that went into deficit because it issued too many IOU nothings to pay a surplus central bank in gold at that fixed price. Meanwhile, the gold owned by central banks remains for the most part buried, inactive in their vaults. Gresham's law has worked. Bad money has driven good out of circulation, even among central banks. All currencies are inconvertible into gold. We are in a world of irredeemable paper money. Further conclusions follow from this analysis. Good store of value money is clearly the strongest kind of money. I owe you nothing money, which people may continue to hold as a store of value for a long time, but only with the enticement of ever higher rates of interest, may continue, also for a long time, to serve as a means of payment and standard of value. But as it becomes more abundant, it will serve these functions less and less satisfactorily. If too abundant, 
not at all. It would then also cease being held as a store of value, not worth a continental. History is full of examples of IOU-nothing currencies that have disappeared. Some currencies will, of course, become overabundant faster than others. Over time, it is scarce store-of-value money like gold that endures. If enduring store-of-value money must be a commodity, it follows that governments and central banks cannot create it, unless they were to go, let us say, into the gold mining business. It follows also that if they persist in creating IOU-nothing money, they will slowly but surely run themselves out of the money-making business altogether and have to start over again. So it is also apparent, and at the same time reassuring, that it is private people in the marketplace, not governments, who decide what money is and what different kinds of money they are going to use and hold, especially the enduring store of value money, the most important of all. Gresham's Law Governments will always try to shore up IOU-nothing money with laws making it legal tender, or even laws prohibiting the holding of store-of-value money like gold. But such laws cannot for very long add value to something that is losing value in the marketplace. Gresham's Law, which is really a special form of the law of supply and demand, will override man-made laws. In fact, there would be no Gresham's Law if governments did not persistently try by man-made laws to overvalue their IOU-nothing money in terms of store-of-value money. Thus, laws prohibiting people from holding store-of-value money like gold cannot succeed, for gold as a commodity can be held in countless forms and readily converted from one form to another. People will hold jewelry or old coins or what have you, and people whose governments permit them to hold gold will do so in any form. It should also be apparent that monetary theorists cannot arbitrarily decide what money is, Theories that are based on an arbitrary definition of the stock of money, particularly IOU-nothing money, will slowly lose their relevance. Such theories try to overvalue IOU-nothing money just as governments do, and in the marketplace, Gresham's Law will override man-made theories just as it overrides man-made laws. So it also follows that governments cannot reduce the importance of a store of value money like gold in the monetary system, much less demonetize it. A monetary authority monetizes anything by buying it and taking it into its balance sheet as an asset and paying for it by creating or issuing monetary liabilities, now IOU-nothings, which are accepted by the seller. It demonetizes anything by selling it from its assets and extinguishing an equivalent amount of its liabilities tendered to it by the buyer. Obviously Inflationary to demonetize gold, the central banks of the world would have to sell all of their holdings in the open market. If they were to try, the exercise would be very deflationary, for they would be extinguishing their monetary liabilities with every sale. To avoid the risk of deflation in today's monetary world, they would simultaneously have to monetize IOU-nothings like government securities by creating new IOU-nothings of their own more rapidly than they extinguished the old by demonetizing gold. Such an exercise would obviously be inflationary, and central bank IOU-nothings would steadily lose value in the marketplace. Under Gresham's law, 
the bad IOU-nothing money would drive the good gold store-of-value money out of circulation. But if the central banks persisted, and there would be precious few restraints to stop them, their IOU-nothings would slowly lose value and, under runaway conditions, all value in the marketplace. Thus, over time, the marketplace would frustrate central banks if they tried altogether to demonetize gold. It would demonetize their IOU-nothing money instead. So, they are not likely to try. It is not even likely that one central bank would try. Others would welcome the opportunity to monetize the gold that it sold, and at the same time, to demonetize some of their IOU-nothings. In recent years, there has been an attempt to substitute so-called paper gold, or special drawing rights, SDRs, on the International Monetary Fund for real gold. One high IMF official is even reported to have called gold metallic SDRs. If used seriously, such an appellation flies in the face of marketplace assessment of store-of-value money. The SDR has no obligor, no promise to pay any store-of-value money at a fixed price, and no fixed maturity date other than a complicated reconstitution provision. It cannot be sold at will. Only by central banks in deficit and only two central banks strong enough to be designated by the IMF to receive them. So it is a who owes you nothing and when, and it does not even pay a market rate of interest, only one and a half percent. If central banks ever monetize them in significant amounts, they will have moved from days when they issued their IOUs principally to buy enduring store of value money like gold, to these days when they issued their IOU-nothings principally to buy government IOU-nothings, to days when they would issue their IOU-nothings to buy who owes you nothings. In days to come, international monetary reformers will have to consider whether these new kinds of money will produce a stable monetary world. In the world's marketplaces, will they hold their value against goods and services in general? More particularly, will those issued by different central banks hold their value against one another? Most particularly, will any of them hold their value against store-of-value money like gold? All right, and that wraps up Currencies Today or IOU-nothings. Let's hit our sponsor really quick, and then I'll jump into a short guy's take. If you are looking for a hardware security device that's going to keep your Bitcoin keys safe, you should really check out the Cold Card Mark IV. Now, if you want something that's air-gapped by default, you want it to be Bitcoin only, well, then you should think about the Cold Card Mark IV. However, if you are looking for something that has NFC, so you can just super versatile and you can just tap the smartphone to sign transactions... Well, in that case, you might want to look into the cold card Mark IV. But then, there's some who really want the features. They want the multi-sig and PSBT, a duress pin, a break-me pin, BIP39 passphrases, and of course, you want it to come in a totally cypherpunk package. Well, in that case, I would say you ought to lean more toward the cold card Mark IV. That one, that one's probably your best bet there. Or, of course, you could check out the numerous other hardware and Bitcoin security devices on the CoinKite store. And 
luckily you get 9% off your entire cart with code Bitcoin Audible. Just some helpful advice from your friend here, Guy Swan. So check it out. Link in the show notes. So what I love about this is the perspective of someone during that time, because it's crazy that we're taught, it's not crazy because it makes perfect sense that a government that is abusing this situation and has gone out of their way to make it illegal for, uh, and this has happened multiple times in U.S. history, for private persons to hold gold and has gone out of their way to refuse to give gold to someone to private citizens, to banks in general, and most specifically to governments, to other governments and other central banks. But the unbelievable power one is given by the ability to sell IOU nothings for real resources. If you have a monopoly, if your political institution, which profits from this unbelievable power, has a monopoly on the education system, There is no way you teach them anything except that those IOU nothings are how money is supposed to work and they are valuable and required to be used in the economy and that the government is there to manage the money and keep it safe and stable for you. When in reality, we've been been in one of the least monetarily stable uh, periods in history. And that's the thing is that, you know, when we grow up, it's amazing one or two generations later. And it's like the whole perspective changes because you don't, you no longer have people who grew up, or excuse me, just the opposite. You have people who grew up thinking this was the way everything worked, that this is normal, that this is the baseline, and everything that isn't the way it works right now is weird or antiquated and, you know, you know something that only boomers talk about. But I cannot stress this enough. This is the experiment. We are living through a monetary experiment that is failing after just 50 years. And monetary conditions, monetary trends take very, very long times to unfold because they are, they are trends that happen at the scale of society. This is not like a couple of months down the road or a you know, bad Christmas season. Like we're talking about things that by by default, start on the scale of decades. In the context of monetary history, everything that has happened in the last 50 years is crazy. And the price of gold, we, remember, this is something that broke down, that we're calling broken, when it went from $35 an ounce to $38 an ounce with a, we're going to say it's $38, but we're not going to redeem any gold for $38 because we're just not doing that anymore. It is currently about $2,000 per ounce of gold. Now, I want you to think about that. $35 an ounce of gold. Now it's $2,000 an ounce of gold. Now, you see those charts that say that, like, oh, we've lost 97 or 98% of the value of the dollar over, you know, the last century or the last 120 years or something. And they try to do it by CPI, by some arbitrary purchasing power metric, which is entirely subjective because basically what is able to be purchased 
is drastically different from what you could purchase in you know the early 1900s. Like we've completely overhauled and changed our economy and the quality and the type of thing. Like there's been so much shift. You can't just compare. You can't you know measure apples and then oranges and then say this is the change in purchasing power because an orange is not an apple. They're not the same thing. And this is why a, a Seyfedin Amus has a really good chapter on this in uh, the Fiat Standard about the arbitrariness of the CPI and all of the many, many flaws and how it doesn't count so, so many things and uh, is a very poor accounting thing. But this is gold is very simple. Gold is very divisible. It's got an explicit amount per, you know, price per ounce. So what's the loss between $35 and $2,000? So in 1972, $35, or before, right before this happened in 71, I guess, $35 would buy you a full ounce of gold. Today, $35 buys you 1.75% of an ounce. 98.25% less in gold in 50 years. Consider that if there had not been any technological progress, if we had been a static production-level economy, no loss, no growth, any long-term savings over 50 years of my parents' generation would only allow them to consume 1.75% of what they had to produce to save it. And there's a bizarre paradox that the very thing that essentially forced us into a world of virtual currencies and caused the contagion of necessarily needing central third parties who quote-unquote managed currencies because we moved into a digital world. We moved into a world that moved so fast that gold could no longer satisfy any exchange. And silver, metallic, any physical good simply could not act as a medium of exchange in an economy that can talk, where New York and California can talk in an instant and, you know, make deals and exchange resources. You had to have a money that could move that quickly too. So the very thing that caused us to move away from gold such that our, our systems of money and exchange became so unbelievably easy to capture, which is what happened. They were captured and the scarcity was stolen from our monetary systems, from our monetary networks, because it's insanely godlike profitable for governments to not have to have a cost to consume resources. I mean, imagine if you could access endless wealth for no time cost, no energy cost, nothing whatsoever, just indefinitely in the future, you were simply king. You just, you just had all the resources you could possibly want. Well, if there was actually any scarcity to our money, that's what central banks and governments would be giving up. But that very same mechanism, the virtualness of money, the digitization of exchange, was specifically because of an absolute revolutionary explosion in the capacity and versatility of our communication systems, which made our ability to cooperate, to 
discuss, to make contracts, to share ideas, to iterate on ideas, to collaborate on products, on services, and build and produce more. So unbelievably more productive that they could steal 98.25% of our purchasing power and standard of living could still actually go up. Imagine what the amount of wealth we can produce would look like without that parasite, without that cancer eating at everything we do. It is only because of how astonishingly productive the organism of the human economy is that such an unbelievably powerful cancer is able to survive in the first place without killing its host. But unfortunately, we've, we appear to have reached the end of that line. The host is dying. And it's funny from a, any sort of a sensible foundation how obvious this eventuality really was. So there's something I love that John talks about, um, or uh, I guess starts off with, this should encourage us to rethink or stop and consider again what money is. And he hits the main points that everybody knows. First, it's a means of payment or medium of exchange. Then it is a standard of value, a pricing mechanism, a unit of account. And lastly, it is a store of value. Quote, we hope to avoid loss by holding it. Money holds its value if it is scarce and remains scarce. Scarcity is the keystone of store of value money. But again, this fell away. This died in the era of digitization, in the era of electronic communication. And that really started with the telegraph and the radio Long, long before the internet. The internet is just kind of the culmination of uh, creating, recreating the entire experience online. I mean, think about how insane it is that huge swaths of the economy now literally work from home. Like, they remote work into business. I mean, it, like, it's one of the cornerstones of the Bitcoin space. There are very few uh, services and companies that actually have... Uh, a heavy in-person working environment. And I certainly think there are a lot of things that you can get from that sort of environment that you can't get from remote work. But the capacity to collaborate and work together without that massive cost barrier for so many people, that alone is truly revolutionary. And we don't know, like it's just beginning to take effect. Like the outcome that this is happening and how this is changing the world and more importantly how this is changing jurisdictions and the ability again to move wealth and um your productive enterprise with you no matter where you are in the world i mean the amount that the world has changed because of the communications revolution and the fact that it's really still only beginning like there's still so much left on the runway of this shift. But we came from a world in which nearly all transactions, except those, uh, except those that were redeemed in massive amounts, you just wouldn't go hand off a billion dollars worth of gold to somebody. Um, but the general exchange of the entire economy was done in person with cash and gold. The ability to recover to gold to redeem to gold, the ability to make exchange in gold, protected 
all of the fact that most of the exchange and most of the economic activity um, was one step removed or immediately with the the very thing that granted and guaranteed scarcity of the monetary system protected all of the other exchange from the potential fraud and cheating that would happen if the accounting was uh, was in fact defrauded which did happen all the time that's why you hear about bank runs before the fractional reserve era the existence of bank runs in that era is not argument against a gold standard or the volatility of the gold standard just the opposite it's proof as to why it's so important that you actually have a scarce money because obviously even when banks are constrained by this they still cheat they still commit fraud and we still require bank runs to keep the system sustainable and in balance the existence of bank runs is why the gold standard is a necessity why you have to have scarce money because if you don't the system's going to cheat like crazy. We have proof that they cheated tons of times when it was incredibly hard to cheat. We just made it incredibly easy to cheat and acted like that means that there is no cheating happening anymore. But a little bit of a tangent. The point is, I was trying to get back to the idea that money was three things. And in the era of digitization, it could no longer, we no longer had a tool that could serve all of its purposes because our economy moved into a world that didn't have commodities, that didn't have, our exchange became an ethereal thing, a pure communication over electronic communications networks. And there's a great quote that even in 1972, to, to see this perspective that we can project forward into or look backward on from freaking 2023, says, quote, Today, no money in the world fully performs all three services. National currencies are being used as means of payment and standard of value money, but none in this inflationary age is an assured store of value money. In fact, a foremost concern to voters and politicians everywhere is that so many currencies are so rapidly losing their value in terms of commodities and services. Commodities like gold and silver, which are being used as store of value money, are not being used as either means of payment or standard of value money. This is what is so crazy about the technological shift, that as the economy moved into this new world, the tool of money, which we had had for a very, very long time, literally disappeared. We had to serve different purposes that were usually all within the same tool by splitting it up among separate tools. And one of the crazy things about this whole era is that we've, we've created monetary premiums for things like housing, Real estate has literally become a major form of store of value for the entire modern world. We've taken this one tool and its critical functions that have always been foundational to the, to the economic mechanism, to the economic system, and we've broken it apart and we've kind of band-aided a bunch of different, a bunch of various tools to try to make them behave in, in kind of a cooperative way to accomplish this task, even in the face of incredibly bad money that is constantly being cheated, is the market is still able to kind of ghetto rig 
10 different things to do all of the relevant jobs, but it requires us to completely to, to spread out all of the different functions and investments when one tool is supposed to do the job or historically has always done the job. And it's only because of the unbelievable amount of time that we have freed up, the extra access to energy and capital and production that we actually have, that we can manage to coordinate a bunch of disparate tools and goods and services in order to accomplish the thing that money just used to do all by itself. It's this funny circular thing that without our communications mechanisms, we'd never be able to pull off a haphazard five different things do the job of money system. But because of our communication networks and the ability and speed the capacity and the speed of our economic exchange in the modern era, we, we lost the tool that did those jobs. But therein lies why Bitcoin is not just a small improvement. We're talking about 130 years, more than a century, that we have really not had a monetary good that could serve all three purposes of money. But today... We do have that in Bitcoin. It is itself a communications network, and it exists purely in the digital world. As Gigi points out, and as the the episode that we referenced yesterday, Bitcoin is the first digital money. Its revolutionary breakthrough was digital scarcity, which meant that for the first time in more than a century, one tool actually had the potential to serve all three major functions of money. And this is partly, this is a major part of why I think the economic foundation to understanding Bitcoin is one of the most critical parts of understanding the perspective as to why Bitcoin is going to win this battle, or ultimately why Bitcoin is a true step above everything else in the space. Uh, There is no second best. And why the relevant timescale is on the order of several decades, at least, that we are talking about. Because if you don't have the right time frame, then, and particularly if you think about this as a, a context of like technology adoption or some service or arbitrary singular utility, like we're trying to get as many people to adopt Uber as possible, I think you're going to completely miss the plot completely miss what is genuinely happening here and what the what the very very profound shift is that has occurred and why bitcoin is the only thing that is actually providing the integrity of the fact that this is actually happening and bitcoin has actually solved this problem and there's an, there's another interesting section actually from this another quote that i think is really applicable to the way we should think about Bitcoin and also why something I have said on this show many, many times and has been a major part of my framing since, I mean, since the very first episode of this show um, is that Bitcoin simply needs to survive in order to win, that that's its only job. But the quote is, good store of value money is clearly the strongest kind of money. I owe you nothing money, which people may continue to hold as a store of value for a long time, but only with the enticement of ever higher rates of interest, 
may continue, also for a long time, to serve as a means of payment and standard of value. But as it becomes more abundant, it will serve these functions less and less satisfactorily. If too abundant, not at all. It would then also cease being held as a store of value, not worth a continental. History is full of examples of IOU-nothing currencies that have disappeared. Some currencies will, of course, become overabundant faster than others. Over time, it is scarce store-of-value money like gold that endures. So, think about if Bitcoin simply continues to survive. And then even now we see how incredibly fast the progress is around Bitcoin and the decentralized payment network being built on top of it and the multiple layers and payment and contracting and DLC and Miniscript, like all of these different services and variations on how you can interact with Bitcoin and the shared ownership models that are occurring. Essentially, the ability to use this in mass as a medium of exchange. If it merely continues to be a sound and immutable monetary policy, while all of these networks and payment systems and non-custodial and shared custodial services build up and expand around this ecosystem, with another 50 years, if the same 98.25% relative loss of value occurs, Bitcoin is going to obliterate the dollar. But I'll just ask, do you think the next 50 years would be worse or better than the first 50 years of a purely IOU-nothing fiat dollar? And that's not even to account for the fact that, that every single time another fiat collapses, which is basically once a year now, maybe, I don't even know, it's, it's become absurd to watch these things crumble and fall, but every time this happens... The, the adoption and the push and the continued expansion and development of the Bitcoin global economy and financial infrastructure steps forward in a major way, and its value case, proof that Bitcoin is the answer and is phenomenally better than all of the potential alternatives, becomes more and more clear by the day, by the month, by the year. Even if that constant reinforcement wasn't present and we were just comparing it to the dollar i think bitcoin still just obliterates it hands down and all we need is time the dollar is doing the job all by itself and you know i think the constant recycling the the continued existence of the pure fiat era can be heavily attributed to the fact that it has no competitor but other fiat and gives the illusion of the strength of fiat and that it necessarily is. You know, it, it attributes the, the reality that we live in and the lack of any good money that can actually serve the many roles that money needs to serve gives the illusion that fiat money is actually better than it really is. Because when we compare one fiat money, all we can do is compare it against a quote-unquote more successful fiat money. We literally lack a strong standard to even make the failure visible in the first place. But Bitcoin has changed that. 
And there's another great quote before we close this out. It says, It should also be apparent that monetary theorists cannot arbitrarily decide what money is. Theories that are based on an arbitrary definition of the stock of money, particularly IOU-nothing money, will slowly lose their relevance. Such theories try to overvalue IOU-nothing money just as governments do. And in the marketplace, Gresham's law will override man-made theories just as it overrides man-made laws. Simply put, on a long enough time scale, it doesn't matter how strong your theory is, how strong your propaganda is, how many people believe that a bad money is in fact a good money. It cannot make reality go away. As we like to say, Bitcoin fixes this. So I want to thank whoever recommended this one for me, because I do not remember in my notes, a lot of times I try to record where I found and or who recommended it to me. And this was one of the ones that I just, I didn't, I was probably in too much of a hurry or I might have been on mobile and it's easier for me to record that stuff when I'm on desktop. So if you are out there and you listen to this piece, I thank you because uh, this was a really great one. This Again, this was on IR. So this is actually an old publication of the same institute, the American Institute for Economic Research. Um, and it's AIER.com. Uh, and they are a great source. I'm, uh, I have read a lot. We've reread four or five things maybe from IR in the past. Um, I put them up there with the Foundation for Economic Education and like Fee is really great for articles um, and uh, just just really good resources for digging into stuff. And like Mises.org, like the, these are sources that I go to quite regularly for a lot of things like this. And this was just so cool because it's a perspective from 1972 of somebody who lived through this era. Like what did they see going forward what did they what did they compare to and what did you know john exter predict in all of this and it's almost that he died in 2006 uh so just just a bare few years before bitcoin came around of course there's no no telling whether or not he would understand the importance or value of bitcoin but you know maybe maybe it would have been cool i wonder the same thing about hayek sometimes would he have gotten it, you know? So I also wanted to talk about, I wanted to thank uh, a handful of people on Fountain. But also I just think Fountain and the idea of value for value. In fact, actually, let me let me uh, refer to one thing in particular. So I mentioned this yesterday, actually. Um, Eric99 boosted 50,000 sats to uh, central banks are inflation creators, not inflation fighters. Read 695. And not only is that an amazing boost, but the comment is just, stay humble, stack sats. And I gotta say, I have, I feel like I have really tried to take that from to heart. And I am, I just thought about today, because I now have my miners up and running downstairs, and they are keeping this house warm, literally. Um... It's really toasty in the basement right now. Um, but I have started stacking sets in a new way that I have not done since like 2012. 
And it's really kind of cool to just see like a steady, another steady stream of sats coming in. So I've got the fold card, which I'm constantly making, you know, 50,000 sats, 100,000 sats, like, like just pulling stuff in from bills and expenses and, you know, normal things, normal places that I spend my money. Then I've got like my swan, my regular stack. Then I've got um, just kind of like a one-off thing with strike that um and actually now i can i could use cash app as well but strike i don't think has any fees cash app still has fees so um but like when i'm trying to manage like little habits or i'm trying to reward myself for making a decision that i think is low time preference you know like let's say like i could go out and eat or do something and i'm just like i don't need to like that crap is going to be cooked and stuff that i know is going to cause me congestion and you know be a pain for the next two days of the podcast etc so uh i say well i'm going to take the 20 dollars, the 40 dollars i would have spent and i'm just going to buy sats and so i stack that way and then on fountain i have the value for value and people donating and stacking sats for me and then i have btc pay server and the website in which you know, some people will buy the the ad-free audio books, like the, the longer form audio that I have up there, which is just like a pay what you want. But a lot of people will just be like, here's a thousand sats. I am stacking sats on top of stacking sats on top of stacking sats. So I just want to say, Eric, not only thank you for the amazing stack that you added to my stack and my other stack on top of my stack, but also that Trust me, I am doing everything I can, and I am stacking the hell out of some sats. And I, th I think I'm, I'm pretty humble. I mean, I'm the humblest. Then Risco drops me 500 sats. Thank you, dude. On another great streak. Keep it going. I will. That is, that, oh my, that is exactly what I intend to do. Holy crap. So Mr. Mister dropped in 3,674 sats and mentioned the stamping seed words into washers and they said they're a proud owner of seed jig from alex flood of seedjig.com uh, i actually went to that website and it's a dead end like i think the i think their server down is down or something but i did find them on twitter and see the the jig that was made pretty clever um or it looks pretty awesome uh but that website is down for some reason. Just just a heads up. I'll I'll check on it again. One incredible boosted 100 sats was up. Good stuff. Thank you. I appreciate that. Jim WSCom boosted 2100 sats and quoted, uh, "I got a college degree. College degree in what? General? Oh, so you took a high school 2.0 and you have none of the relevant skills to be a productive person." <laughs> Your rants are epic. Intro music bumped up 1.5x. Gives me every time to. No, seriously, the, the intro music. Um, I just found this on uh, uh, Invado Elements, so it's just like a open domain thing. But legit, I listen to it every time when like I have it play over while I'm recording, and it gets me jacked. I'm I'm a big fan of my intro music. Camper with a four instead of an A boosted 12,321 sats little palindrome there's a correlation between the likelihood of overcomplicating oh this is talk, talking on uh, locked out of my digital life um correlation between the likelihood of overcomplicating your setup leading to loss of funds and the midwit curve 
The essay should be titled, Why Bitcoin Elite Loses Their Funds. In hindsight, it all correlates with the lack of humility. That's true when you think about it, like what he detailed is how many quote-unquote very secure practices he had in like, you know, using two-factor and a password manager and all this stuff to make sure his stuff was secure. And they ended up, a lot of those things ended up really just being the reason why he couldn't get into all of it. So that's, that's, that's kind of funny. B-Glass drops 7,777 sats. I love the washer idea. Me too. Um, I got me a jig from CryptoCloaks.com after hearing you talk about it. Heck yeah. I actually don't have the CryptoCloaks jig, but um, I did just buy the CryptoCloaks uh, shroud for the What's Miner so that I could connect it into my ducting and get an inline fan for it. A Raikwa. Boosted at 500 sats. Hey, yo, nice episode. Okay, basics of one. Um, gonna suggest breaking down the white paper, but apparently you're way ahead of me. Keep on keeping on. Uh, yes, sir. And then followed by 2,000 sats from good old Vake. And Vake comments with fire emoji. And Michael Matulef boosts 500 sats with a heart emoji. Orange heart, that is. I gotta say, this fountain thing is really cool for a couple of different reasons. But one, one thing that I love, and, and you see this on Noster right now too, is it's really exciting to see lightning truly in action. And we're getting to that point where lightning is just beginning to work. And most importantly, lightning and sats are become, slowly becoming a medium of exchange for people who aren't Bitcoiners. A great example is our mortal enemies over at Linux Unplugged. Now, we are in the midst of a war right now, and Bitcoin Audible is winning, I would have you know. But they are not a Bitcoin show. And some very foolish supporters are giving them sats on a regular basis over the Lightning Network. And it's funny, I had not listened to their show in quite some time until I went back to self-hosted, where I had listened to some of self-hosted and it took me back to Linux Unplugged because I'd just kind of been wrapped up in the whole Bitcoin space and podcasts. And a lot of the old shows that I used to listen to, like Security Now and Tom Woods and a bunch of things, I kind of moved away from. I'd migrated to this other subset of stuff. And I got back around and I had no idea that they were, because they just mentioned on the show, it's like, oh, somebody sent us some sats. And this is the kind of stuff that's going to open up the ability to, you treat money differently. You treat money and content differently when you have at your disposal the ability to do something like this so quickly and so easily. And I think we're getting to a place where you are obscuring away so much of this in the background. People aren't needing to know how the protocol works. It just works. You just send and receive sats. And Snowden actually had a really good post. I'm not going to be able to find it, and I should read it. I'll try to remember to bring it up in an episode, because we're going to be covering topics around this very, very soon. And I've got a really, really exciting episode that I hope to... We will record on Monday, and I hope that we will actually publish on Monday as well. Um, for, so it will be a interview episode but I'm super, super stoked about this one. And it's all just kind of about the decentralized stuff and the new encrypted peer-to-peer -peer economy. So I'll have ample opportunity to read and or go back over Snowden's thing. But he just talked about how 
um, it felt different. Like this felt unique on Noster and lightning was really working. And there are a lot of people who were commenting on, Hey guys, how do I get a lightning wallet? How do I get some free lightning on Noster? They're not Bitcoiners. They're coming to Noster. They're for the, for the fact that they have a decentralized censorship resistant social media and then seeing everyone interact with lightning and basically wanting to play along. And honestly, I think this is the phase of Bitcoin that we are moving into. Um, we've been slowly, again, like looking at these things as like decadal like time periods. We've been moving aggressively into the medium of exchange and just kind of building out the infrastructure and the fundamental tools to make this era happen. But we are in a place where we can scale 50 to 100x in the size of the network and it works still. I really think we are reaching that point and I think this next wave is going to be a different kind of adoption wave as the last one. Like I think we're going to see people using it. I think what we're seeing on the ground in Nigeria and in a lot of African nations actually and South America are literally using this day to day. They're using it as a currency of exchange. And increasingly, and I think I'm probably projecting a lot of this myself, but I'm able to use it in so many different places and in so many different ways. Like I'm, I'm using lightning more and more and more. And it's not even out of like, I'm, I'm running around looking for more ways to use it, so to speak. It's just that it keeps coming up and it's a tool that's constantly available to me. And the, the main wallets and services and things that I use are getting easier and better to use. A great example is Cash App, just fully integrated Lightning. You can pay people with Lightning. I can send and receive Lightning. And there's just been ample opportunity of new adoption and new networks and new people coming on to test things. Another great example is Noster. I sat on one of the Noster um, uh, services or whatever. I can't remember which one it was. It was one that just basically looks like an, a never-ending IRC chat, and it's just a global feed. Um, so it wasn't really there wasn't really much of an interface and stuff. It was about as dirt simple as it gets. So I can't remember which one it was called. Um, but uh, Astral Nut, Astral Ninja and Nostergram are two that I really kind of enjoy right now. But I just sat up there for like a couple of hours just paying people. Anybody who sent me an invoice that was less than, I think I, I think I said like a maximum of 5,000 sats or something like that. Um, but the people were just dropping invoices and I was just paying them, just one after the other. And then Jack did that. Jack, the, uh, Jack Dorsey from the creator of Twitter just sat up there for like a whole day just paying lightning invoices one after the other over and over and over again. And I know this episode wasn't supposed to be about lightning, but it's just crazy to see all of this happening and then seeing the decentralized and encrypted peer-to-peer -peer networks spawn at the exact same time or really spawn because the ability to treat them and build unique experiences around them because of what lightning enables and because of the the additional pressures to have a means to talk like the attention around the fact that censorship is deeply prevalent like it is it is fundamentally and massively affecting the public conversation 
And that there is no way that that doesn't have not anything but negative results. Censorship does not make good ideas rise to the surface, neither in the censored zone nor in the people who are uh, competing with the censorship. In fact, it calls more attention to the most absurd ideas because people overreact and get aggressive in their their they essentially get more defiant and more confident about the fact that the worst thing that they think is probably or must be true because someone is trying to censor the conversation. Somebody is trying to cover it up and not allowing me to share this. If it was something that could actually be refuted, they would let me say it. And that's one thing that I don't think the mainstream understands is that their idiotic tyrannical behavior is exactly the fuel that is creating the culture that they hate so much and the backlash and the absurd the ridiculous theories that they say they have to censor that the reason they have to censor and that the reason they have to censor is because they can't defend their own ideas is because they're wrong and they don't even have the slightest confidence to stand on their own two feet and stand behind their actions and defend their actions and their beliefs and what they are telling people to do in the face of any legitimate debate. And I'll tell you, that doesn't garner very much confidence. But things are changing rapidly. Um, and it's exciting that in the midst of it all, at the center of this crazy little picture we've got is a currency a new digital money that is not an IOU nothing in a world of IOU nothings. And that is pretty crazy. So with that, uh, that, was, that was a lengthy fountain lineup right there. Uh, thank you guys so much for boosting and helping this show in the leaderboards on Fountain for supporting the show and helping me to keep the house fed and the lights on. And honestly, for the comments, for the comments, for the feedback, um, I take them to heart. And in fact, actually, there was another one I almost forgot. Um, Mr. Mister made another comment. Uh, what did I do with it? I made it all go away. Well, I remember what it was. It was uh, in referring to the Bitcoin basics and about the... Referring to Dergigi's piece, the your, the words we use in Bitcoin, and kind of the comparison to, I remember the examples of signing device versus wallet, and then like invoices versus addresses. There's a lot of wording that we use in Bitcoin, a lot of things that we name, like cold card hardware wallet, is it gives the impression that your Bitcoin are on the hardware wallet. And it's like, it's like where they go. And even just because of this terminology, that's something that I will say sometimes. Though I usually explicitly or try to explicitly refer to keys on the hardware wallet because it's more of a keychain. It's a place to store your keys and a signing device. It uses your keys to sign proof of ownership of Bitcoin that just exists in the Bitcoin universe the bitcoin chain the bitcoin network it's never actually stored on a device the only thing that is stored on a device is the key to unlock it and what you do with that device is sign with that key to prove that you own the bitcoin so that's a really good suggestion and i appreciate that as well as the sats that came with it 
But that's something I definitely, definitely want to keep in mind for the Bitcoin basics to try to make it as clear as possible what is actually happening as we go through a lot of the fundamentals of how Bitcoin works and what the various pieces of it are. Um, and on that, I will actually link to Gigi's piece as well, uh, the read of uh, the words we use in Bitcoin. But anyway, we will wrap it up here. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you to Swan Bitcoin, to Fold, and to CoinKite for obviously being sponsors, but also just having awesome products and services that I have been a avid and longtime user of, all three, literally, way, way before they were sponsoring the show. So I thank you guys, and I thank them, and I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. Lenin was certainly right. There is no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all of the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and does it in a manner which not one man in a million is able to diagnose. John Maynard Keynes this podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>